If you got a Bible with you, open up to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we're finishing Peter's sermon this morning. We've been here a few weeks, and we're enjoying this verse-by-verse study through this amazing book, the book of Acts. And uh, this morning, Peter's powerful sermon, part 3, that's where we'll be in verses 37 through 41. So hopefully you guys are warming up a little bit. Those of you in the shade, it's still kind of chilly, but the sun's coming. All right, I'm going to try to warm you up a little bit with the preaching of the word as well. How's that sound? So here we are, Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 41. Here's what the author Luke writes. He writes this, Now then, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to sing these hymns of the faith, songs that encourage our hearts to look to you, our steady anchor. We're grateful for your word today as we're reflecting on Peter's sermon back at Pentecost. I pray that the truths that we're reading this morning would affect us in such a way that we would behold our God and that we would behold your son, Jesus Christ, and that we would want to follow as these followed by giving our lives and our hearts to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we're looking this morning at the third part of Peter's sermon, and I've been talking to you a little bit the last couple of weeks about the power of expository preaching. And I've told you that there are many today who are trying to move away from preaching and moving into more of a conversational tone, a casual tone, kind of a laid back tone in a way to do church. But I want you to know that I believe that the Bible is clear when it commands pastors to preach the word of God. And that's what Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and with teaching. And I told you last week that the word preach comes from the Greek word caruso. That word means to make a public declaration. It means to proclaim aloud. A preacher is to be a herald of the truth. A preacher is not to be soft-spoken or shy. Uh, He's not to kind of skirt away from from difficult issues. It's a preacher's job to deliver the goods. A preacher's job is to deliver what was cooked in the kitchen. I gave you that quote last week from John MacArthur who said, quote, the preacher is not a chef. He is a waiter. God doesn't want you to make the meal. He just wants you to deliver it to the table without messing it up. That's all close quote. And I'll say an amen to that. I love that reminder that that's what a preacher's job is, is to bring the book. And our conviction here at Placerita is to do what's called expository preaching, which is the spirit-empowered explanation and proclamation of the text of God's word with a due regard to the historical, contextual, grammatical, and doctrinal significance of the given passage with the specific object of invoking a Christ-transforming response. 
And by the way, do you know where we got this idea of expository preaching from? Maybe I should just ask, do you know where we got the idea of the modern concept of expository preaching? And I would point back to John Broadus, who wrote the first book in the English language on expository preaching. He was part of the founding faculty of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and served as its president from 1888 until his death. He was the professor of preaching there at the seminary and gave the first class that we know of in any seminary on expository preaching. And who attended his class that particular semester was one blind student. He had one blind student in that class, but John Broadus went to great length to lecture each and every day to that one student, and they collected his lecture notes at the end of the semester and put it in a book which is entitled, quote, The Treatise of the Preparation and Delivery of Sermons. That book sits in my library. It's a essential for any member of, uh, as a member, any graduate of the Master's Seminary who's probably uh, passionate about expository preaching. And in that book, Broadus outlines the tenets of expository preaching. Let me just give you five summaries that highlight the book. Number one, commit to the expository method. Commit to the expository method. That's really the idea of digging down deep in the text, dealing with the grammar, dealing with the syntax, dealing with the original author's intent. That's the very basis of expository preaching. Number two, Broadus said, be possessed by your subject. So it's a pastor's job not only to do the study, but to be transformed by it. Number three, preach the gospel in the Spirit's power. So if a preacher is preaching from any text in the scripture, while not every single text points directly to the cross, every single passage in its greater emphasis has something to do with the theme of redemption. And every sermon should have in there somewhere a clear gospel message. Number four, Broda said, preach with your life, not just with your sermons. So in other words, if the preacher is not above reproach, He's not going to be perfect. I'm not perfect. You know that. But if he's got the character that God's called him to have out of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, he needs to be living an exemplary life. And then number five, preach in order to pastor. You know, a pastor's job, a preacher's job is not only to preach the word, but to shepherd the flock. And sometimes it starts with the preaching and then it continues in the discipleship, in the counseling, in the shepherding, and the conversations that are had after that. And one of my favorite quotes from Broadus's book would be this, quote, after all our preparation, general and special, for the conduct of public worship and for preaching, our dependence for real success is on the Spirit of God. And where one preaches the gospel in reliance on God's blessing, he never preaches in vain, close quote. So again, it's just a reminder, a preacher can do all the preparation and the study, but if he's not dependent on the Holy Spirit working through the word of God in the hearts of the people, then he's doing it in vain. But as long as the preacher's faithful to the word of God and faithful to preach the gospel as it's given to us in the scripture, then he never preaches in vain. And while John Broadus was the first person that we know of to write actually a whole book on expository preaching, let me ask you this morning, do you know who 
the first expositor actually was? Who was the first man who's known as the first expositor of the word of God? And the answer is, it was Moses. Moses, in the Bible, is the first first faithful preacher of the word of God. Now, he's a prophet who God revealed to him the scripture, but if you look through Moses' addresses that he gave to the children of Israel, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy, which we know is the second law, while he's standing in his sandals on the sands of Moab, getting ready to enter into the promised land, he reiterates and re-preaches again and again all the truths that God had revealed to him and to the Israelites up to that moment. And so Moses is really an incredible example. What I'm saying is, is that expository preaching, while it was defined well by John Broadus in the late 1800s, it's been around since the Bible. This is not a new invention. It's not something that people are trying to come up with for some type of church growth effort. This is what is biblical. Moses was the first known biblical preacher. And then we could go on throughout the whole Old Testament, and that would include Joshua, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the minor prophets, they're preaching the word of God. In the New Testament, there's John the Baptist who showed up on the scene preaching to repent and be baptized, as you know. There's Jesus, the greatest expositor ever known and the greatest sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. There's Peter, who's preaching this message here in Acts chapter 2. There's Stephen in Acts 7, who will preach to his death. There's Paul in Acts 17, who preaches on Mars Hill. There's Apollos, James, Timothy, Titus, and John. And from the second and third centuries, as we continue to follow the line of expository preaching, the second and third, third centuries included Melito from Sardis, Clement of Alexandria, and Origen. We have excerpts of each and every one of, of these men preaching expository sermons. There's a, a scattering of expository messages all the way up until the Reformation. And then there's an explosion of expository preaching with John Wycliffe just before the Reformation, and then John Huss, and then, of course, we know Martin Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, John Knox, John Hooper, Roland Taylor, Hugh Latimer, John Bradford, and Nicholas Ridley. There were Puritans who were known to be aflame with the Word of God, like William Ames, Richard Baxter, Thomas Brooks, William Bradshaw, John Bunyan, Jeremiah Burroughs, Stephen Charnock, John Cotton, Oliver Cromwell, Jonathan Edwards, Matthew Henry, Cotton Mather, John Milton, William Perkins, John Rogers, Samuel Rutherford, Richard Sibbs, Thomas Vincent, Thomas Watson, Isaac Watts, and John Winthrop, just to name a few of your favorite Puritans, all right? Other preachers that we must not overlook from the Puritan era to the modern day would be John Gill, George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, D.L. Moody, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, A.W. Tozer, James Montgomery Boyce, and R.C. Sproul. These men have been faithful preachers. They've all come and gone and left a legacy of what faithful preaching looked like. There are more biblical preachers alive today, a few of them being John MacArthur, John Piper, Sinclair Ferguson, Alistair Begg, Ligon Duncan, Mark Dever, Al Moeller, and Steve Lawson. 
And if I didn't name your favorite preacher, I'm sorry, all right? I'm just giving you a list of well-known godly men who've been exposing the word from Moses all the way up to your pastor. That's the line that we stand in, and that's what expository preaching is all about. It was something that was modeled so well throughout the scripture, but particularly in the book of Acts. We have this sermon by Peter in Acts 2. A little bit later in Acts 6, verse 4, we read how the apostles said, we must devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. We read in Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15, how will they call upon the one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in the one whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then, of course, 2 Timothy 4.2, preach the word in season and out of season. And so what we see here are beautiful reminders that expository preaching is exactly what God's called us to do. And that's what Peter's doing here in Acts chapter two in his powerful sermon at Pentecost. Remember, this is the first Christian sermon ever preached by a follower of Jesus Christ. And like any good sermon, Peter's sermon had three parts. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at part one, the prophecy of Joel out of verses 14 to 21. Last week, we looked at the preaching of the gospel, verses 22 through 36. And this morning, we'll finish with Peter's sermon here, uh, this plea for repentance. That would be a subtitle for the message, if you will, a plea for repentance. Peter's powerful sermon, but we're going to look specifically at verses 37 through 41, his plea for repentance. And this morning, this third part, the plea for repentance, I've broken it up into three parts for our time together this morning. So our first heading for this message would be this, number one, biblical preaching cuts to the heart. It cuts to the heart. Look at verse 37 with me again, if you will. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Hearing the gospel, here's your first blank if you are taking notes this morning. Hearing the gospel has an impact on you. For these in the audience hearing Peter's sermon, it cut them to the heart. And if you'll remember, Peter is addressing all of the Jews who had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. And there had been a a loud rushing wind and there had been divided tongues as of fire resting on each one of Christ's disciples in the upper room. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues or languages as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the crowd then asked, what does this mean? And in order to answer that question, Peter opened his Bible and he preached from the Old Testament. He covered Joel 2 to explain the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. And then he preached from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110 in order to explain the resurrected Christ. And then we read last week as we ended our message in verse 36, let all the house of Israel... Therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter preached that Jesus is both the Lord, he's the master over all, and he's the Christ. 
He's the Messiah sent from God to be the savior of the world. Peter preached that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the anointed one. Jesus is the lamb of God to save the world from their sin. And he tells his listeners, and you crucified him on a cross. And so when the audience heard these words, when they heard what? Notice again, verse 37, when they heard this, when they heard these words, when they heard everything that Peter had been preaching up to this moment, when they heard again Peter's preaching from Joel 2, when they heard Peter's preaching about Psalm 16 and realized that David's body was still with them in the tomb, but it was Jesus of Nazareth whose body was no longer with them because they were all witnesses to the fact that God had raised him up because the pangs of death could not hold him. It was impossible for Jesus to be held in the grave. And when they realized that they were all witnesses of Christ's resurrection, when they realized that Jesus has now been exalted to the right hand of the Father when they realized that Peter, preaching from Psalm 110, said that the Father said to God the Son, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. It's when they heard this, not when they heard a funny story, not when they heard a fantastic illustration, not when they heard about the latest issues in politics, not when they heard about another disturbing truth and observation about society, It's when they heard this, when they heard the gospel preached. It was when they heard the word of God preached and explained, when they heard the truths of the risen Savior proclaimed, that is when they were cut to the heart. That's what got them. The fact that this Jesus from Nazareth, who they just saw as a man and a commoner, when they're starting to come to the realization that this is the Lord of glory, that he has been raised from the dead. This word cut, when they were cut to the heart, it literally means to pierce. It means to stab. It means to cause acute emotional distress. It means to feel sharp pain. And this is the feeling, that, that pit in your stomach, when you know that you've done something wrong, and it's now being brought out in the open for everyone to see. That's exactly how they felt, and that's how we should feel today when we're living in sin. And all of a sudden, the preaching from the Word of God begins to cut to our hearts. We begin to be riveted, and we should be affected by the faithful preaching of the Word of God because it cuts like a knife into our soul. That's why we gather together every Sunday. We're not here to have our ears tickled, we're not here just to have a few laughs. We're not here just to enjoy the coffee, though the coffee is especially good this morning. All right, we're here to hear the word of God preached. That's why we come. That's why we're at church. And not only does biblical preaching cut to the heart, but your next blank says, hearing the gospel brings deep conviction. Hearing the gospel brings deep conviction. As we see in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and, and they, they uh, said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Well, many of these Jews realized at this moment that they had been duped by the Pharisees and the scribes. They had been told that Jesus was insane. They had been told that Jesus was demon-possessed. They had been told by the Pharisees that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. They had bought the lie and had shouted just 50 days earlier, 
crucify him, crucify him. And he had gotten so bad that even when Pilate washed his hands before the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood, see to it yourselves. All the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children, Matthew 27 says. So they were completely deceived. They were taking full responsibility for murdering the Son of God. And Jesus said, though, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them in time, John chapter 16, verse 8. And when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness, righteousness and judgment. And I'm just saying that as they're sitting now here under the preaching of the word of God with Peter, clarifying what's going on, as the Holy Spirit is now entering the scene, as he's cutting to the heart of the issue, they are now being convicted. And I just want you to know this morning that being convicted is a good thing. That means that you're being convinced in your mind that this is true. To be convicted is to be affected by actually the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God to feel the weight of your sin, to, to be shown your sin and to be shown your Savior at the same time is the most beautiful truth that you could ever see, to realize that I'm doomed because of my own sin, that the wages of my sin is death, and you get painted into a corner where you feel like, well, how can anybody be saved? Because we're all sinners. And then we understand maybe for the first time in your life, but Jesus came and he died on a cross so that you could be saved from your sin. That's the most beautiful thing that you could ever hear. And I'm telling you, that's what conviction of the heart is all about. I've had a lot of people tell me over the years that they don't really like preaching that includes hellfire and brimstone. They don't want to be told that they're wrong and they certainly don't want to be told where they're going. And a part of that is because they don't want to be convicted to sit up and hear some preacher rant on and on and on about, you're all going to hell. Who wants to hear that, right? But you must hear the truth of God's word if you're going to be convicted. But with that conviction, there also comes great hope. But it doesn't mean that we skip over the hard part of preaching, right? Listen to me this morning, soft preaching, fluffy preaching, having your ears tickled, will create in you a hard heart. But hard preaching, preaching that is true to God's word, will create in you a soft heart. To say it again, soft preaching creates hard hearts, but hard preaching creates soft hearts. And I would say, praise God for his grace. Praise God that he is patient with us. Praise God that the truths of the gospel, while they cut like a knife, they expose the error in our soul. They expose our sin. They expose our unbelief. And that is the mercy of God. It's the mercy of God that leads us to repentance. And so they then said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, they're like, well, what are we supposed to do about this? We're being cut to the heart. We see that we're guilty of our sin. And the response of their listeners to Peter's sermon is, I, I, need, I, need, some, something, I need some direction here. I, I, don't, I, I can't just be left in this place. I realize I'm a sinner. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I realize that I'm not righteous. There's no, not one. I realize that I'm dead in my trespasses and sin. I realize that the wages of my sin is death. Most people, again, in the world today are just cruising through life without thinking through those important truths. Somebody's got to bring it up. 
Somebody's got to bring up the idea of accountability. Somebody has to bring up the idea of the consequence of your sin. Somebody has to say, you and I are sinners and we deserve hell. That's the preacher's job. And that's also your job as an evangelist, as a witness, as a fellow laborer, as an ambassador. Your job is to be clear with what the consequences of our sin leads to. And at the same time, to be clear about the beauty of the good news. That's why it's good news. It's because we realize what we deserve. That's part of the gospel message. But thank God that's not all of the gospel message. I'll never forget, I was at a church in Savannah, Georgia, where I served for a while. We put on a passion play. We had a lot of visitors come and sign cards that they had visited and maybe made a decision for Christ. And I remember we followed up on all those cards by going out to the community and visiting the homes and say, hey, thank you so much for coming to our passion play that we did you know, a few weeks ago. I'm just here to follow up to see how you're doing. And I remember making a visitation with these two high school kids and, uh, because they had come. And, and uh, when, I was in, when I knocked on the door and kind of worked my way into the house, I'm talking to these kids. We're sitting in the family room and I'm telling these two high school boys this part of the message. I'm just like, hey, you guys are on your way to hell. You know, I'm like, you guys are stuck in your sin. And I was just trying to paint the picture really clear. And I remember the mama came out of the kitchen and she's like, I've been listening to you and I want you out of my house right now. How dare you tell my boys they're going to hell? And I'm like, well, ma'am, do you know where you're going? No, I didn't say that. <laughs> she ran me out of the house with a broom. She like beat me out of the house and I didn't even have a chance to turn the corner. So I think a lot of the complaints about the hellfire and brimstone is because people just like, they just share that part of the message. You're on your way to hell, take that. You know, and it's like, well, yes, that's true, but let's come full circle. Amen? Let's come full circle, and that's what Peter's doing. We need a message of hope. We need a message of forgiveness. We need a, a message of cleansing. We need a message of mercy. It's all about having eternal life in Jesus Christ. What we're really talking about here, your next blank, is hearing the gospel awakens your need to respond. What must we do? The people ask. And so Peter had just told them that Jesus had been resurrected from the dead. Peter had just told them that Christ's body would not undergo decay. Peter had just told them that all of Christ's enemies would be placed under his feet, uh, which should point us to the fact that, that as friends of God, we know that we will not be placed under his feet. And so he's kind of making this case for the supremacy of Christ and yet we know in the rest of the Old Testament, or excuse me, the rest of the New Testament, I'm thinking now about Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, but God shows his love for us. So when you're stuck in that place, well, I guess I'm on my way to hell. I, I, that's part of my testimony. My dad shared Romans 6.23 with me when I was about eight years old and told me, he said, son, this verse says the wages of your sin is death. Do you understand what that means? And I said, no, dad, I, I don't really understand the word wages. And he's like, well, that's what you've earned. Or that's what you deserve for your sin. Have you ever sinned? And I thought back to earlier that day when I got in a fight with my brother and I got a spanking for it. And my daddy gave some good whoopings because I deserved them. And he said, well, you got that spanking because of your sin and God disciplines you even further. According to this verse, the wages of your sin leads to death. And I'm like, well, dad, what does that mean? And my dad looked at me and said, it means you're on your way to hell. And I was like, oh my word. You know, it's like, 
I'm eight years old, and my dad's telling me I'm about to bust hell wide open. And as soon as he told me that, because my dad, I knew my dad was a loving, gentle, kind man, but he was so stern the way he said that, it just, something about it just struck me. And I remember I just broke. I mean, just like within a couple of seconds of him saying that, I just started weeping. And I'm like, well, dad, if that's true, how can anybody be saved? The wages of our sin is death. We're all doomed. We're all going to hell. And he said, well, son, that verse doesn't stop there. It goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it was like a light bulb came on. You know, it was like, oh, that's why Jesus came. Because I deserve hell. I'm on my way to hell. God shows his love for us, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you. He loves you. How can we be saved from our sin? It's through Jesus Christ. And this is the real heart of the gospel. In fact, just turn with me to John 3, 16. I know you know it by heart, but I want to look at verse 16 and verse 17. So just go to the left there to John 3, 16. But this is the gospel message, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The idea of hell even exist in John 3.16. That word perish there means to be separated from God forever. It means eternal death. It means that you're going to hell. And that's why God loves the world is that he sent his son. He sacrificed himself by sending his one and only son that whoever would believe in him wouldn't have to perish, wouldn't have to go to hell, but would have eternal life. Because this is God's purpose, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So hopefully you see the beauty of verse 17. It's in 16 as well. He loves the world. He sent his son to die for the world. If you don't believe in him, you will perish. But verse 17 is, the point is, he didn't send Jesus to condemn the world. He sent Jesus to save the world. God loves sinners. God sent his son so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. God's goal is not to condemn the world, but to send his son to bring salvation to whoever will repent and believe. And if that's you this very morning, then you need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's you this morning, then you need to repent. You need to turn from your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved this morning. And the problem is that in our depravity, we love our sin more than we love the Savior. We're just going to be honest this morning. We're not brought to that point to where we're really truly convicted and cut to the heart about our sin. In our depravity, we love darkness more than we love light. In our sinful condition, we do what is wicked and we hate the light. But when God shines his light, when he reveals his truth to us, when God calls us to himself, we cannot continue in our sin. When we hear the preaching of the glorious gospel, we are cut to the heart, we are convicted of our sin, and we are changed from the inside out. And what I want to know from you this morning, has that ever happened to you? Have you ever been convicted and cut to the heart to the point that you were broken that you were in tears, 
You may not have literally cried, but you felt the, the, the depth of your sin to the point to where you knew you needed help. You were in big trouble. And if you didn't turn to God, then you didn't have any hope. Has there been a point in your life where you've ever been so convicted that you're like, God, what do I do now? I've made a mess out of my life. I've made a mess out of my marriage. I've made a mess out of things that I'm addicted to or enslaved to in this world. What am I going to do? Have you ever been convicted to the core and were you convicted by God's word, by God's truth? Have you ever been changed because of God's love for you? That's what biblical preaching does. No story can do that. No illustration can do that. It's only the word of God. Biblical preaching cuts to the heart But number two in our outline, biblical preaching clarifies how to respond. It clarifies how to respond. Look at verse 38 here. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's no beating around the bush here. Basically, Peter tells them three things. Number one, your next point in your outline, you must repent. You must repent. Peter's preaching remains clear. He didn't say you need to give money. He didn't say you need to try harder. He didn't say that you need to keep the law more perfectly. He said you must repent. This is in the imperative. This is a command. This is something that Peter is boldly calling his audience to do. Repentance is a change of heart, which leads to a change of actions. To repent is to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ. Repentance is a change in your behavior originating from a change in your heart and a change in your attitude. Repentance is a gift from God. Repentance is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Only God can grant repentance. You can't do it on your own. You can't make yourself sorry. All you can do is look to God and beg him to make it clear of how sinful you are, but at the same time, oh God, would you spare me? Would you have mercy on my soul? Repentance that God gives is truly a gift from him. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. It's more than that. It's a commitment to change, which is evidenced by results. Repentance is the evidence of regeneration. Repentance is an essential part of your salvation. Repentance is the sovereign act of the grace of God in your life. And at the same time, it is a response that is commanded by the Lord Jesus and by John the Baptist. You might remember some of the first words Jesus ever spoke recorded by Matthew in Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. And what was his message? Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the first thing that John the Baptist said in Matthew 3, 2, the chapter before that, John the Baptist said, repent for the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so the concept of repenting is preached throughout the Bible. It starts with John the Baptist, I guess, chronologically, and then Jesus. And then it's here in Acts 2 with Peter. 
It's again in Acts 3.19, repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Acts chapter 8 verse 22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17.30, the times of ignorance Uh, The ignorance of God are overlooked, but now he commands that all people everywhere are to repent. Now, one of my favorite passages, maybe just turn there with me quickly, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. This is maybe one of my favorite passages on repentance in the Bible. When I'm just kind of walking through somebody about what it literally means to repent, I start with this concept here of 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, where it says, for godly grief produces, um, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And it goes on to talk about what that looks like a little bit, but I just want to make sure you're understanding just verse 10. Godly grief, if you have an NASB version before you, it's going to say godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. Here in the ESV that I'm preaching from, it's godly grief versus worldly grief. What's the difference? Well, one produces a repentance that leads to salvation, and the other produces death. In other words, godly grief or godly sorrow, that leads all the way to repentance, but worldly grief and worldly sorrow, it only produces death. Godly grief has no regrets. No regrets that I got caught. No regrets that I have been shown the error of my ways. No complaints about whatever earthly consequences I might face because at least I don't have to face the consequence of hell. Because if I've been repenting from my sins, if I'm truly repentant, there's a change in me that produces life. There's a change in me that produces true change and I'm no longer bound to what I was. But worldly sorrow, worldly grief, it's going to only be the idea of remorse. It's only the idea of I'm sorry, and you know what, I made a mistake, and there's no true change. And that, my friends, doesn't cut it when it comes to eternal life. There is no repentance with worldly grief. There is no turning from sin in that case. There is sadness or even anger that you got caught or that you have been confronted and that you've been told you need to change. But if you don't truly change, then you're just stuck in worldly sorrow, worldly grief, and that's going to lead to your death. And the reason somebody stays in that is because they actually like their sin. They, 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 they're sad about it, but they're not, they, they don't hate it to the point that they're ready to do whatever it takes to uproot it out of their lives. They still prefer their sin over doing what God's called them to do. So whenever you're examining somebody who's been caught in sin, that's what we're trying to discern. Is this worldly sorrow? Are they sorry they got caught? Did they have a little remorse? Which is good, but time will tell whether or not genuine repentance has really taken place to the point of where they've been radically transformed. Godly grief means that you are ready to change whatever is necessary to get the sin out of your life. Many of us, struggle with pet sins that we have been struggling with maybe in our life for a while. And we feel bad about them, but not bad enough to eliminate them out of our lives. And our, my prayer is that we would experience this type of godly grief or godly sorrow to the core that everything about us is shaken up and everything about us is like, I am so done with looking at that. 
I am so done with saying that. I am so done with acting that way. God, grant me this kind of repentance where I can be truly transformed. And Peter tells his audience, you've got to repent. You've got to turn from your sin and turn to him. Not only that, but just as quickly as he says you need to repent, he says you need to be baptized. To repent and be baptized. That's your next blank there if you're taking notes. To repent and be baptized. Now here in this idea, Jesus, uh, just as Jesus had taught on repentance, he also taught on baptism. Uh, Remember the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And such a bold public act of baptism helps determine the genuineness of a person's faith. If a person is sold out for the Lord, Jesus Christ, and they, they, then they should be willing to do anything that he says. And if Jesus says, repent and be baptized, then that individual should be willing and wanting to be baptized. And if somebody says, hey, I've repented of my sins, I believe in Jesus, I've accepted him into my life, but I'm not ready to get baptized, then I have a problem with that. Because the Bible says, repent and be baptized. So we understand that salvation comes first through repentance and faith, and then baptism is the first act of a Christian's obedience. It's the first opportunity they have to actually put into practice the Lord's commands. And if a Christian's not willing to be baptized, then I'm not sure if they're really a Christian because they're basically saying, well, I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to obey what it is that Jesus says I need to do. To be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ means that you're willing to be not only a believer in him, but a follower of him. It means that you're abandoning your life of sin and are willing to walk as a true disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Please note here in verse 38, Peter says, every one of you, every single one of you need to repent and to be baptized. Each Christian needs to be baptized. It's not enough for your dad to be a baptized believer. It's not enough for your mom to be a baptized believer. It's not enough for your brother or your sister to be a baptized believer. It's not enough for your friend to get baptized. You must be baptized if you want to be obedient to the word of Christ. And I believe it would be baptism by immersion because simply the word here for baptism in the original is the word baptizo, which is where we uh, get our word baptism from. And in the lexicon, every lexicon, which is a language dictionary, the definition of the word baptizo means literally to dip or to immerse. So it means to go up under the water. And in fact, that's what we see uh, recorded all through scripture. You never see in scripture anything about sprinkling You never see anything in scripture about pouring over. You never see anything in scripture that would allude to that in any way. In fact, the scriptural texts read like this, Mark 1, 9 and 10, in those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Doesn't say that he was standing beside the Jordan. Doesn't say they got some holy water out of the Jordan and flicked it on Jesus. Now, John is in the water, and Jesus was baptized by John in the Jordan. And the next verse says, when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open as the Spirit descended on him like a dove. So we see here that Jesus was baptized. He went 
into the Jordan and he came up out of the Jordan. John 3, 23, John was also baptizing at Anon near Selim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. Why did John the Baptist baptize at Anin near, uh, Anon near Selim? Because there's a lot of water there. And they understood that they needed to be baptized by immersion. How about Philip when he evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch? In Acts 38, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. So what I'm saying is not only does... Do words matter, baptizo, to be dipped, to be immersed, but prepositions matter, down into and up out of. Now, again, don't be confused here. I'm not saying that baptism saves you. There is a view in the Roman Catholic Church and in other other sects, or I should say false false churches that teach a different doctrine than justification by faith would say that you can be saved through baptism. And if that's true, then it's a work. And we understand you can't be saved through baptism. It doesn't infuse grace. And neither am I saying that someone who hasn't been baptized by immersion is not a Christian. We have many Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ who have been sprinkled, and I believe that if they understand justification by faith alone and Christ alone, that they're genuinely born again. I'm just simply preaching the Bible the way I understand it. You deal with it the way you understand it, but I'm just telling you, it's pretty clear if you just look at the Bible that one needs to be repenting and then one needs to be uh, willing to be baptized as a believer. And that's what Peter tells these to do that are listening to him. And I believe that's what we need to do in order to truly be obedient to the word of God. And so Peter's clear teaching was you must repent, you must be baptized, number three, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. There at the end of verse 38, it says, uh, you need to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And I understand here that that word, when it says, uh, when it says in verse uh, 38, when it says, let's see, sorry, for the forgiveness of your sins, that word for, the forgiveness of your sins, that could also be translated because of, for So we're not saying that you can be uh, baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. You're you're repenting for the forgiveness of your sins. But if you tie for the forgiveness of your sins to baptism, then you should think of it as because of your baptism, you should be uh, baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Again, just clarifying, Peter's not preaching that you're saved by two things, repentance and baptism. You're saved simply by repenting. And we would say by believing as given in many other texts like John 3.16. But the idea of being baptized is more of a act of sanctification. It's an act of obedience. It's something that God's calling us to do. And if these people do what God's called them to do, then Peter says you will receive the Holy Spirit as a gift from God. And this is the promise, I believe, of the Holy Spirit, which is given to every believer. This is not a promise of a a second blessing. This is not a promise of some type. It doesn't mention here the spiritual gifts. It's just simply saying the Holy Spirit dwells inside of 
every born-again, bona fide believer. This is not a promise that all Christians will speak in tongues or do miraculous things. This is a promise that every believer will have the Holy Spirit living in them and that you will have power over sin and power over temptation and true joy and true satisfaction by being filled with the Spirit and by operating in His power. And the gift of the Spirit does not come through water baptism, but through repentance and faith in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've been trying to clarify that over these uh, first couple of sermons on Acts chapter 2. So I'll just leave it at that for now. But what we're seeing this morning is biblical preaching cuts to the heart. Biblical preaching clarifies how to respond. And then number three, our final heading, biblical preaching creates a sense of hope. It creates a sense of hope. Your next blank says anyone can be saved. Verse 39, anyone can be saved. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And so here Peter is talking about, again, the promise of salvation, which includes the Holy Spirit. And God has made a covenant with Israel. And now he's extending, verse 39, he's extending that spiritual promise to all people. That whoever you are, if you repent and believe in Jesus, you will be saved. There had been a special emphasis on the Jews. So the question is now, well, what about these Gentiles? Romans 9 verse 4, Paul talks about how the Israelites to them had been given adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. So we understand in the Old Testament that these promises belong to Israel they were God's chosen people. But in the New Testament, we're now seeing a significant change in redemptive history. And that change is now we're moving away from the old covenant and we're moving to a new covenant. And part of that change includes that salvation is now more clearly than ever being extended to the Gentiles. And so while there's still mainly Jews that are coming to the Feast of Pentecost, remember they're coming from 16 different dialects, and these languages are now speaking the very words of God in the tongues that were being spoken, these actual languages. So we know they're going to go back to their area and continue to evangelize. But he's just making it clear here that this is for everyone, not just for the Jew only, Romans 1.16. It's also for the Greek or in Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, Paul makes it clear when he's addressing the church there, believers of Jews and Gentile believers, he says, therefore, remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Same language being used here in verse 39. This promise is now for you and your children and for all who are far off. It's for the Gentiles. It's for the ends of the world. It's part of the great commission to take the gospel, baptizing all people, even to the ends of the earth. It's understanding Acts 1.8, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This everybody, anybody, I should say, anybody 
can be saved. The gospel's not just for the Jewish people. And so Peter is preaching this message. It's for you and for your children. It's for anybody who would be brought near. Everyone, Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In Joel 2, when Peter referred to the bringing of his sermon, uh, excuse me, when Peter referred to Joel 2 at the beginning of his sermon, he says the same thing. Remember, he quoted from Joel 2.32, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So I'm saying salvation is for anyone, but you do have to be called. Verse 39, it's for everyone, here's the condition, whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So he's not preaching a universal salvation. He just said, hey, it's available for all. The general call goes out to all, but there's also an effectual call, which only works in the heart of God's chosen people of the elect, of those that he's predestined before the foundation of the world, that they would be called to him. And so we understand from a human standpoint, anybody can come. But we understand from this verse that it's those whom God calls. And I'm saying he calls everyone in a general sense, and he calls his own in an effectual sense. In other words, God saves all those that he's predestined to save. That's what he says in Romans 8, 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. In that text, we call it the golden chain of redemption, that everybody whom he predestined to be saved, he will call. And to those whom he will call, he will justify. And to those whom he will justify, he will glorify. And that actually should be encouraging to us. I know, again, this could get into the debate here about predestination versus free will. But the idea here is that you may think that you can run from God, but you can't. If he sets his sights on you, he won't stop until he convicts you, until he regenerates you, and until he brings you into his family. And as far as I'm concerned, from your perspective, you don't need to be dating, whether uh, debating in your head or heart, whether or not you're in the elect or not. You're just called to come. You're called to come right now. You're called to see your son right now. You're called to see your savior right now. And if you come to Christ and if you believe in him and follow him, then one day you'll say, you know what? The only reason I ever came to him is because God called me. He drew me to himself and he changed me. And now I see from scripture that that's something that he did before the foundation of the world when he predestined me. And I can't run from him anymore because his grace is irresistible. And you may think you can run, but if he's called you, he will bring you all the way in and you can't run. And guess what? You won't want to. That's the beauty of redemption and regeneration. When he saves you, he transforms your will to where now you want to be his child. And you come to him with a changed heart. And this could happen to anybody. It could happen to anybody whom the Lord calls. Your next point says this, everyone needs to listen to the preacher. Everyone needs to listen to the preacher. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witnesses, excuse me, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked and twisted or this crooked generation. So here in verse 40, it, it may only take us a few minutes to actually read through Peter's sermon here in Acts 2. It's taken me three weeks. 
right, just to cover the passage, but please notice here that while you can read it in just a few minutes, this does say with many other words, with many other words. So we know Peter's sermon wasn't literally only what we have written here in scripture, but it was with many other words. You thought I was long-winded. You think I'm long-winded right now. I have many more words to share with you. That's what Peter is saying. He's like, he's preaching the essential truths and he's doing it with many other words. He's bearing witness. He was testifying. He was declaring solemnly of all that he had seen and all that he had heard. That's Acts 4.20. We cannot help but speak of what we've seen and what we've heard. John did this in 1 John 1.3, that which we've seen and heard, we also proclaim to you. Peter continued to exhort them. Uh, you kind of get the feeling in the text here that he continues to preach. He continues to exhort. He's not going soft. He's not going light. He's not going short. He continues to exhort them. That word exhort means to urge strongly. It means to appeal to. It means to encourage. And that's what preaching is. Biblical preaching is not just informing you of the text. It's calling you to it. Biblical preaching is persuading the listener to respond to the truth. Biblical preaching is beseeching. It's prodding. It's calling people to respond to God's message of salvation. And that's why Peter says at the end of verse 40, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So again, Peter's not saying they can literally save themselves in their own strength. But he's saying, respond. Remember, this is a plea for repentance. And he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation. The word crooked there means scoliosis. That's the word in the original. You know about scoliosis in the spine. If it's bent or twisted, the word could also mean dishonest. So Peter's saying, hey, look, you're living amongst the people of unclean lips, like Isaiah 6. You're living in this generation that Jesus called evil and adulterous. He called this generation faithless and twisted. And so when Peter says, save yourselves, he's simply saying, be saved. Be saved, be born again. It's a command that God gives to repent, and yet we know it's God's work to do what God does. Only God can do it. But in the same sense here, Peter is creating a sense of hope that the response that they need to have to the cutting of the heart is that they need to save themselves. They need to be saved. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, Jesus said in Matthew 7. He said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it there are many. For the gate is narrow, and, it is, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so Peter, in a sense, is saying, hey, go against the grain. Go against the culture. Go against this crooked and twisted generation. Be saved at this moment. And then we see verse 41, what happens? All who received God's word were baptized and added to the church. All who received God's word were baptized and added to the church. Here's the result of the sermon, which we'll see even further next week in verses 42 to 47, but verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so we see here on this very day, the day of Pentecost, a call for a response. And we understand that there were 3,000 people who repented and they were baptized. Some people again ask about our debate about 
baptism, whether or not there was enough water. We think that they moved from the upper room where Acts 2 started to the southern steps of the Temple Mount, which was in a larger public context for thousands of people to hear his message. And there at the southern steps of the Temple Mount, if you've ever been there, you know they've excavated these Jewish cleansing bathtubs called mikvahs. And these mikvahs would have been used for the Jewish pilgrims to come in and be cleansed and to put on the garments of praise and to cite the Psalms of Ascent as they would go up and climb up the steps uh, into, onto the Temple Mount in order to worship God. And it's thought by most historians that that was a wonderful place to turn those mikvahs into believers' baptistry uh, pools to where you would march down the steps, go under the water, and on the other side, you march back up the steps out of the water, and they could have easily baptized 3,000 people on that day. It's pretty incredible. If you've been there, you've seen those mikvahs excavated and you can say like, man, this is awesome. It wasn't just like one baptistry with a long line. They were probably just dunking them by the thousands as they had the apostles and others working with these people in order that they could be baptized. What a beautiful uh, picture of true revival, right? Our true, true uh, salvation, true, true uh, Holy Spirit work inside of this church and how we would long to see God work like that in our life and in our church today. We're going to have a baptism service next month and we have seven uh, people who are going to get baptized. But I'm just saying, how exciting is this to see that as Peter preached the word, that people didn't shy away, people didn't run away, they responded and they were added that day 3,000 souls. And so I'm just calling you today as we wrap up this message, have you repented and have you been baptized? There's no reason why you would not want to repent from your son and turn to Christ this morning. My prayer is that God, through his word, has been cutting to your heart. And if you want to talk to somebody about what God's doing in your heart and your life, as we close with this last song, we'll have a few people standing right up here who would love to pray with you. They would love to talk to you. I would be available. Any of our elders would be available or anybody who brought you here this morning would be wanting to talk with you about what does it mean to be a true Christian. And if you are a true Christian this morning and you've been born again, I want to encourage you to be baptized by immersion in obedience to the Lord's command. And I want to encourage you to be just as faithful as Peter was to proclaim these truths out of Acts 2 in your daily life, even this week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the joy of meeting outside and the beautiful weather that we've had this, this day. And I just pray, God, that you would continue to cut to our hearts through the sermon of Peter I'm just really preaching his sermon this morning, and I pray, God, that you would use your words, which are infallible, inerrant, and these timeless truths to bring conviction to our hearts today. God, we don't want to be in a spiritual stupor. We want to be awakened by the Spirit of God. I know that there are people here today who have never repented of their sin. And I pray, God, that you would grant repentance today in such a way that would cause a response of a lost, dying soul on their way to hell to be born again by the beauty and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would see the beauty of the blood of Christ that was shed to redeem lost and dying sinners. I pray that today for us that are believers who've been saved already, that we would be willing to walk in obedience by believers' baptism. I pray that we would also be able to walk in obedience, to be stirred this morning 
by the, the hard preaching of the word of God. We're just thankful for the examples from Moses to Peter all the way to the present day of those who've been faithful to teach us the word of God. God, may we not seek again to have our ears tickled, but may we look for real solutions to real problems and may we find them in the Bible. And we know that salvation is a simple concept for those who've been saved, but may we never get tired of studying it, reading it, thinking about it, becoming more impassioned and emboldened to share this truth with our neighbors and our co-workers, unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God and the salvation to all those who believe. Be exalted in our hearts this day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.